Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. Real people, real inspiration. Growing Boulder is all about creating the life you want, chasing your dreams, and we've got some great passion pursuers for you today. You're not kidding, Mark. How about one of the best-selling artists of all time? We got him right here. This guy is so big that his last name is a single letter. Can you guess who I'm talking about? I can't. Well, you'll find out soon. Also, are you tired of people telling you what you shouldn't eat? One of the world's top food authorities is here with the 1,000 foods to eat before you die. And a surviving and thriving story that reads like a Hollywood drama, an uplifting yet heartbreaking story. That's not all, folks. We've also got the versatile actor, comedian, and writer Paul Reiser. And how about the 105-year-old grandmother who has been named the World Power Lifter of the Year? All that today on Growing Boulder. Oh, man, if only we could negotiate the rights to make that our theme song. The unmistakable sounds of the biggest-selling instrumental musician of the modern era, one of the best-selling artists of all time. He's got global sales totaling more than 75 million records in a career spanning almost three decades, 23 albums still going strong. Grammy Award winner Kenny G is the world's premier contemporary jazz artist. He's set to release his 14th studio album, Let's welcome the world's most renowned saxophonist, the one and only Kenny G. Hey, Kenny G, how are you? Hey, Mark. Wow, that's quite an intro, and uh, thank you. Uh, is it as good to be Kenny G as it seems like it is? <laughs> that is a funny question. I don't know. I'm I'm happy who I am. I mean, I think people should just be happy who they are. So I guess I'm I'm doing as well as, as most people. You you know, your music is so beautiful, and, you know, I want to think that the music is a reflection of the artist, and if I was talking to somebody from Metallica, I might assume that, uh, you know, their life is filled with stress and anxiety. Uh, it seems like you've got to be very relaxed and calm, and I know that's probably not true, but in general, uh, th- does your music reflect your life? Oh, I think so, yeah. I'm I'm generally that way. I'm I'm... I'm a very I, I look. I think I'm an easygoing guy. You'd have to ask the people that have to be around me on a daily basis, but I think I am. And I, um, you know, I, I put a lot of my um, effort and integrity into my music. I think that's the kind of way I live my life. I'm things that are important to me. I try to do well and. I try to treat people well, so I don't know. I, I hope so. Amen. Hey, before we talk about your latest projects, can we go back just to, for a second to your younger years? Because it sounds like you were not the child prodigy that many of us assume you might have been. In fact, is it true you didn't even make your high school band? It's true. I didn't make the high school band my first year, and I just practiced more that year. And when I came back the next year after that in, in 11th grade, I was first chair, so it just goes to show you that, uh, you know, if you can, if you get a door slammed in your face, it doesn't mean it won't open at some point. And how did uh, you find the saxophone, Kenny, or did it find you? I found it by watching someone on television when I was a kid uh, playing uh, what I thought was a really cool solo, and I thought that it would be fun to do that. So I rented a saxophone. I had my mother get it for me, and I started practicing, and I just really liked it right off the bat. Wow. Uh, You know, I definitely want to get into your newest album, but I read something recently that that I didn't realize. I mean, I knew you had one of the best-selling Christmas albums of all time. I didn't realize you have the best-selling Christmas album of all time, and that's ahead of Josh Groban, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, and and others. You've got to be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that, and the reason I'm so proud of it is because the the music that I did with... um, I have, a, I, have a, I have a writing partner and a, and a guy that I work with where we, we do lots of my music together. His name is Walter. And Walter and I really meticulously made these arrangements for the Christmas songs to what we thought would be arrangements that would last, you know, for 100 years. Just something very, very classic arrangements. And I'm real proud of the fact that people really like the way that we did it. 
Well, you're 10 years into your 100-year goal. Folks, the album we're talking about is Kenny's 1994 album, Miracle. So check it out if you haven't already. Your new album, which is just about to come out, is called Brazilian Nights. Really a labor of love for you because, as you've said many times, you're really in love with the bossa nova. Can we listen to just a little bit of this, Mike, and then come back and we'll have a question or two for Kenny? Oh, man, that is going to be a huge hit. Uh, uh, Kenny, you've, you've covered some classic Bossa Nova tunes. Uh, you've also written some new ones. What is it about the Bossa Nova? And is it true that, you know, as you say, you, you, you attack this in your meticulous, studied kind of a way? I really love the, the rhythm of Bossa Nova and, and because it relaxes me. The, um, the, the chord changes interest me. So it's not just music that's background and relaxing, which I, I like that too, but, but I do like Bossa Nova because it's got enough rhythm and enough chord changes that it, that it really just gets my interest, and at the same time, it really relaxes me, so um, I just love it. I've loved Stan Getz, the way he plays it back in the 60s, and Cannonball Adderley, another great sax player from that era, and Paul Desmond, who uh, played that very famous song, Take Five. He's, he does a very nice version of of some Bossa Nova songs as well. So I listened to those guys, got inspired, and then I made my own CD. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with the Grammy Award-winning Kenny G, one of the best-selling artists of all time. And, and Kenny, as popular as you are here in the U.S., uh, you are at least as popular overseas. In fact, China apparently has this obsessive love affair with your hit tune, Going Home, which over the years, and, and this is fascinating and, and, and comical to some degree, it's become the unofficial closing time anthem across the entire country, a cue for the public, as the song says, to go home, and I'm guessing you get a whole lot of royalties from that, huh? Uh, Mark, I wish I got a lot of royalties, but uh, unfortunately that's not the way it works over there. But it is flattering that my song is so prevalent throughout the, the country. I mean, I've, I go over there and play my concerts, and I hear it, I hear it in malls, I hear it in the streets of, over loudspeakers, um, I hear it on public transportation, at restaurants, every, <laughs> everywhere, and... Um, it is their cue to go home, so when I do my concerts, I play it last. Oh, man, that's great. You know, I love you because you are such an interesting guy, far from a one-trick pony. And if I may, a couple of quick things. I read that you were one of the very early investors in Starbucks before it went public and that you now spend 30 minutes almost every day trading stocks in your portfolio. Are you a good trader, Kenny? <laughs> well, it's true about Starbucks. That's great. That's a good thing. Uh, I'm not much of. I don't trade my Starbucks. I just kind of just hold on to the, uh, what I've got and let, let it do its thing. But um, I'm, I don't know if I'm a good trader or not. I used to be. <laughs> uh, I, I had a run where I was doing really well, and just like anybody else, um, there's per periods where it doesn't go well. So I'm, a, I'm actually a very con now. I was going to say conservative, but I'm not really that conservative. So um, I do okay. Let's put it that way. I'm I'm just okay and. It's probably something I should just leave to the experts, and that, that would be my advice to anybody. Do you have a favorite sector that you invest in, or is it really all over the board? Uh, it's just kind of companies that I've been watching for a long, long time. You know, I've just there's certain stocks that I've uh, that I invested in like 20 years ago, and I just kind of watch them every day and see if I see a, a place where it feels like it's time to to buy or sell, and and I go with that. And you know, like I said, most of the time. I hit it right, and then there's times when I just completely miss it, and and anything I've gained, I've lost. So, um, like anybody else will tell you, you, you know, you've got to be, you, you should do it like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Maybe make sure you're diverse, so that um, if something goes bad, it doesn't hurt your your whole big picture. So, but I'm not a big expert on that. I, I just dabble. You're also a scratch golfer who has been called the top musician golfer in the world. How often do you hit the links? Well, you know, it's funny. I was um, I was hanging out yesterday in Orlando with um, a guy that won the Masters in 2008, Trevor Immelman, and so I'm only saying that because I, I'm lucky enough that I get to hit balls and and be around these great golfers. It definitely helps to talk to these guys and see what they're doing for your handicap to get lower. So I play as much as I can, and for me, it's exciting to be around the world's best at anything. 
And if you're on the golf course with some of the great players and you get to watch their technique and ask them questions, it's, it's priceless. Wow. Uh, you know, Kenny, you really do seem to have life figured out to some extent. And, and we almost never close an interview with ask, without asking someone like you, you know, what, what's the takeaway? You're now in your mid-50s, uh, seem to be as engaged in ever in your art. What can we learn about life fr- from your experiences, would you say? <laughs> That's a good question. I wish I had it together. <laughs> um, you know, actually, I'm I'm starting to think like this. This is this is my latest philosophy, and it's been that way now for a bit of time. It's like, you know, um, I'm in I'm in my mid fifties. Everything works. Like my body works. You know, what I'm saying I can, I can walk, I can run, I can jump, I can do anything, which isn't going to last forever. Everybody knows that, and um, so I'm trying. I'm thinking that now is a good time to really enjoy. Uh, the world. If I, I have the chance to travel around the world, and normally what I do, like when I go to China, I usually, if I have four concerts, I go there the day of my first concert, I play the four concerts, and then I jump back home, because I like to spend all the time I can with my with my kids. Now, my youngest is now going to graduate from high school and go to college, which means I'm going to have more time. So my 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 next phase is going to be spending more time enjoying the world because I, I can right now because everything, like I said, everything works pretty well. And so if I, if I, if I go to China, I'm going to stick around for another week and, and do some sightseeing. Good for you. I'm going to leave you with this because I know one thing you have not done, at least that I don't know about it, in your amazing career is you have not scored a movie. Uh, we just finished an inspirational documentary about a group of cancer survivors who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We were lucky enough to get Wayne Gratz to compose the score. If we thought you were available, Kenny G, we would have come after you hard. So the next time we've got uh, a film, we may we may reach out to you. Good idea. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh... I'm virgin territory when it comes to doing film scores, and I'm ready to go, and I know I would kill it, but unfortunately, this, these are the doors in Hollywood that seem to be closed, and, but you know what? It's Like I said, it, life is still going on, and I'm hoping those doors will open someday. Kenny, we love you as much as we love your music. Folks, he is the great Kenny G. Check out KennyG.com for tour dates near you, and make sure you order his new album, Brazilian Nights, because it is fantastic. Thanks, Kenny. She was on her deathbed, but saved by the perfect match from a perfect stranger. She says it was a miracle, but what happened was heartbreaking. That story, next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Time now for our surviving and thriving segment. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. Yeah, and in addition to all of that, sometimes it does require the help of a stranger. In this case, a perfect stranger, or at least a stranger who is a perfect match. With time running out, Crystal Osha found her perfect match. Crystal Osha was a 30-year-old single mom when she suddenly began to feel weak. One night I went in to take a shower and I passed out in the shower. And they called 911 and um, they took me to the hospital. And within 24 hours we knew that I had um, acute myeloid leukemia. And I went through um, my first round of chemotherapy and it didn't work. Um, they did a bone marrow biopsy and it actually had gotten worse. And it was, okay, well, let's go to plan B. Plan B was a bone marrow transplant. Crystal's brother and sister were the best hope for a compatible match and both rushed to town for testing. Neither one of them were a match. So that was our next big blow. <laughs> it was, you know, what do we do now? 
Doctors immediately got her on the national bone marrow transplant list, but finding a match was far from a given. So we waited and prayed and continued the chemotherapy. I was um, very, very sick at this point. You know, my days were very numbered and everybody knew it. With time running out, they received news that there was a perfect match, a 21-year-old male who had signed up to be a donor three years earlier. Within 24 hours of his donation, they were helicoptering his bone marrow into the hospital. In a way, he was there. You know, I was holding it and it was about to become part of me. It was a miracle. We tell the patient this is going to take a year, this is a marathon, this is not a sprint. So you have to have this fighting spirit. So people who has the will and has the spirit to fight for this one year, they will make it. I hit that one year mark and I begged them, please, please, can I have some information on this donor? I have to thank him. And um, they gave me an email address and um, his name. And I emailed him right away. He emailed back within 24 hours. Crystal learned that her perfect match was Jacob Hess, a recently married soldier from Washington State who had signed up to be a donor on his 18th birthday. His mom went with him. That was part of his birthday. He could not wait. And he signed up. Four months after they began emailing, Jacob informed Crystal that his wife was being deployed to Afghanistan and he was going to join her. And he volunteered to deploy with his wife because he wouldn't send her anywhere that he wasn't willing to go himself. I didn't hear back from him. The doctor's office called me and asked me if I would come in for an appointment. And um, they actually sat me down and said that he had been killed in Afghanistan on January the 1st, 2014. He was the first known U.S. casualty in Afghanistan for this year. When he died, a part of me died with him. But a part of him still lives with you. <laughs> I have been told that I'm 99% Jacob's bone marrow. And I believe that he still lives in me. And that I can carry on his, you know, hope and dream to help other people. Although she never met the young man who saved her life, she did meet his mother. surprised me and had Jacob's mom and stepdad flown in from Washington State to meet me. They walked in and I just melted. Like, I, I just, I just fell apart. I just cried. Crystal was so moved by Jacob's gift of life that she's now dedicating her life to helping others like her. I am definitely going to be a nurse. Now that I've been through cancer, I want to be there for those cancer patients. And to honor the gift that's been given her, she encourages everyone to become a bone marrow donor. Just to know that he took the time to be there for a perfect stranger, to be my perfect match, it just makes my heart beam. You know, that, that's a rare story, Bill, that's both uplifting and heartbreaking. Unusual to find an 18-year-old who, for his birthday, actually wants to sign up to donate his bone marrow. What's even more amazing is that three years later, when he was matched with Crystal, he could have changed his mind, but he didn't. What an incredible story, Mark. Great job on that. And I can, even though he was married and in the service, he stopped everything to give the gift of life to a perfect stranger. And folks, if you're interested in becoming a bone marrow donor and possibly saving someone else's life, you can get more information at bethematch.org.
Coming up, if there's one thing that we all have in common, it's that we like to eat. And we've got a world-renowned food journalist who's actually written the book on what to eat. Mimi Sheridan is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Mark Middleton with a word about the Growing Boulder mission. Struggling to hold on to the illusion of youth while avoiding the realities of aging is a losing and ultimately self-destructive effort. We all go through significant changes as we age. We have to accept that we can't defeat aging, but we shouldn't accept the common vision of aging. Growing Boulder is not about holding on to youth. It's about maximizing the opportunity of age, which means realizing that many virtues associated with youth are in fact not age-related. The desire for vitality is not age denial. The desire for accomplishment, strength, adventure, and significance is not age denial. The truth is that few know what's possible as we age, and the upper limits of that possibility are changing daily. Growing Boulder is not about denying aging or becoming ageless. That's a losing battle. It's about changing the destructive and unsubstantiated ageist narrative that's so prevalent in our culture. Well, our next guest has been called the Grand Dame of food journalism. She's the original high-profile restaurant reviewer, pioneering that position from 1975 to 83 with her work at the New York Times. Yeah, she's the big deal, folks. Uh, a James Beard-winning cookbook author of 16 books. Her latest is 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die. It's pretty much a master list of the world's best dishes, ingredients, restaurants, and food-related experiences. Let's welcome one of the most authoritative authoritative voices in the world of food, Mimi Sheridan. Hey, Mimi, how are you? I'm fine, and I have to thank you for that very nice introduction. Well, you know, we're honored to have you, and what a book you've written. I mean, it, this thing, folks, it, it's bigger than a phone book, and it is far more interesting. <laughs> you've had a six-decade love affair with food. This book pretty much leverages everything you've learned. In fact, you write in the introduction, and this book is pretty much your autobiography. How so? Well, it has uh, defined and made up my life, certainly for the last 60 years, when I have done it professionally, and even before that, uh, because it was such a big interest in my family, and I loved to cook, and food was not my first career, but I finally moved over to it. So although it's been 60 years professionally, it's been even longer than that um, non-professionally, just hobby and interest. So, so many of my memories and friendships, uh, experiences, and even objects in my home were uh, things that resulted from trips I've taken in search of special foods that I wanted to write about. Yeah, one bit of constructive criticism for you, Mimi. I, I kind of wish the book had been written in in a plastic-covered paper because the drool factor is off the charts on this thing. <laughs> well, you can order a hardcover one and then wrap some saran around it or uh, wear uh, a drool cup if there is such ah, a Well, th- thank you for that. As soon as the Mimi, uh, uh, you know, official Mimi drool cup comes out, I think I'll order one of those. <laughs> you know, I love how what, what you did there. I mean, it's like a food safari through 70 world cuisines for this ultimate foodie bucket list and 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 what i like is that's how you organized it it's the geography of flavor as opposed to just geography well there were some uh areas that were difficult to call as to where they belong most especially the mediterranean area as compared let's say to the to the balkans or north africa it's what i think of of the uh, doma, stuffed vegetable, kebab, and eggplant, tomato, green pepper cuisines. 
some are flavored differently than others and and belong more, let's say, to the eastern Mediterranean than the western. So here and there it was hard to call, but flavor finally was the decisive factor. Folks, we're speaking with Mimi Sheridan, who is really one of the world's uh, top authorities on, on food of all kinds. And, and, of course, Mimi, we can't all travel to these exotic locations in the world to try this food as, as much as you make us want to do that. But you've really got that covered as well, because in addition to describing the food, you not only provide information on where we can get it, but also where we can find some recipes and the ingredients to try to cook it ourselves if we want. Well, we felt it was essential that every one of the thousand foods to eat be triable in one way or another. And that was part of what took so long to finish this book, because tracking down the sources, trying to be sure they were reliable, making switches as places closed and businesses changed hands took really much longer than, than writing the, the original entries. Uh, but as you say, failing all else, there are instructions on how to make it yourself and where to find uh, exotic ingredients online. And I must say, they're widely, most are widely available online. So, so how do you hope that this book maybe will change the way people think about or, or even consume food? I hope they will be more open to the ideas of other people, other cultures. I hope if they read it, um, first of all, I would like them to get pleasure just from the read. Uh, next, I, I would like them to be lured to try something. And even if they don't like the sound of it, to be tolerant of other preferences. Uh, there are cultures that will be grossed out by some things we eat, I'm sure, and it works the other way around. But uh, there's a certain validity to the food that every culture eats. Yeah, our producer today had, would you, was it kabuchi for, for uh, lunch or something and, like that? And I had a convenience store sub, which was pretty gross to most <laughs> other cultures. I don't know what kabuki is except a play in Japan. Yeah, I think that's probably how it should remain. Hey, <laughs> that's your next book, Mimi. You, you know, you mentioned the Internet, and, man, we're learning that's good and bad at so many different levels and so many different things. And, you know, you are the real thing, as we've mentioned, the authoritative voice. What do you think about mobile apps like Yelp that makes everybody a critic? I don't pay any attention to consumer-based ratings. I don't pay any attention to Zagat except for the telephone numbers and addresses. I don't pay any attention to, to Yelp or there, there are a couple of others because I never know really how, who the people are and whether it was uh, orchestrated by the owner of a restaurant. So I really don't pay any attention to those and none of those were sources we used for any information in this book. It's got to be interesting to you, though, at how big all these food and restaurant shows have become and how the, the chefs, they're, they're now national and, and sometimes even global celebrities. Yes, it's a little too much so, I think. There are some specific chefs and their work cited in A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, especially in terms of their restaurants, such as um, uh, Lamy Louis in Paris and the French Laundry and Alinea in Chicago. Uh, those are those entries um, are, are really there because the entire meal is an experience. And, and in fact, uh, although there are a thousand entries in this book, there are many more than a thousand foods discussed within some of some of the entries. You know, you make a great point, Mimi. In fact, folks, her book is called A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die. Uh, if you're traveling anywhere, domestically or internationally, this book is a great companion to take with you because you literally will lead us in almost any city in the world to a good meal. I hope people find it that way and also that they plan a trip because they want to try something they read about in A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die. I hope that there are people curious enough about food to want to go to a particular place to try a number of dishes. Hey, Mimi, in our final 30 seconds, we hope you don't die anytime soon and you keep on eating <laughs> because we love what you do. But we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, someone uh, of, of your stature and your success, what's, what's the lesson in life that we can learn from you about remaining relevant, about remaining uh, uh, you know, significant in this world that we live in at any age? 
Wow, that's a tough one. I guess you have to be curious. I guess you have to feel it would be interesting to know more things than you already know. It has to perhaps be sparked by some initial contact, which maybe will happen to people who read this book. Uh, I think so much of it is within the individual, but I think curiosity is one of the most important traits that lead to an interesting life, that plus courage and an iron stomach. You answer that like you've been asked it a thousand times and rehearsed the answer. That was fabulous. Folks, she is Mimi Sheridan. Her new book is A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die. You really should pick it up because it is a fascinating resource. Mimi, thanks so much. Coming up next, the 105-pound, 77-year-old powerlifter who is inspiring women nationwide to improve their life by improving their strength. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Our next guest is incredible. She is a veritable fireball of energy. She's inspiring women all across the nation to better their lives by improving their strength and their fitness but to this degree is just unheard of. Yeah, she's probably not what you're thinking, folks. She is, in fact, a 77-year-old grandmother, weighs 105 pounds, and can deadlift 215. She, in fact, has become the top female power lifter in the world in her age group. And get this, she didn't start lifting until just a few years ago. Let's find out how it all began as we welcome the amazing Willie Murphy. Hey, Willie. Uh, hello there. How are you? Matt, we're thrilled to have you. Did you work out today? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I have just completed a workout. Well, that's great. You know, as we mentioned in our little introduction, you have not been a weightlifter your entire life. In fact, you are totally self-trained. You didn't even start until relatively recently. When did you get interested, and how did you get started? I uh, got started because I uh, began running uh, track and field at my middle uh, years of uh, 50, and I wanted to uh, have an edge on the rest of the ladies, and I started uh, just lifting five-pound weights uh, in order to uh, leave uh, faster when the gun would go off, and guess what? To separate myself from seven other ladies, and guess what? I really, really did my best, and guess what? The ladies were so proud of me because I did the 100, the 200, the 400, the 800, and I started doing the 1500 just for track and field, and guess what? Because I'm lifting weights now, I started way back then, I'm stronger, and I'm feeling much better. You're more explosive. You're faster. You're quick. You're as fast as it gets. Well, um, I can still run 100 meters in 10 seconds. No way. Uh, I'm proud of that. So, so, so Willie, let, let me ask you this. You said you worked out right before you came on the program here. Now, maybe we have a different idea of what a workout is. To me, it's a brisk walk to the car down the driveway. I go to the store, and I get donuts and coffee, and then I take a break. Uh, well, today I uh, am lifting now, uh, deadlifting 225 pounds, and I weigh 105, and I do um, half of my weight for the bench repetitions for a total of 45 uh, times within two minutes, and then I do the power curl at, at 60, uh, 10 times, and then I do the bench, the regular bench at 120 pounds. 
Folks, we are. And, that, and that's just some of the things that I do. Plus, I do the flexibility and uh, the stretching. And uh, I'm, I am um, not injury because I do everything very slow. We're talking with Willie Murphy, folks, and guess what? She's 77 years old, and guess what? She is the world champion powerlifter. Now, to be as strong as you are, Willie, uh, I'm guessing you've got to be taking steroids. Well, I want to thank you so much because in November, when I flew down to Atlanta, Georgia, for the world powerlifting competition, everybody has to take that urine test. And guess what? I'm always, always free of any kind of medications, and I'm proud of that. You're in charge. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, Willie, when you started lifting, you told your family you were going to work out. You were going to get in shape and get strong. Didn't they look at you and say, but Willie, you're a grandmother. You're 70 years old. You can't be working out now. It's too late. And not only that, may I say this, they're saying that it's not womanly to be lifting weights. And ha, 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 the laugh is on my family because guess what? The ladies and the young girls now are lifting weights in order to become better soccer players, better basketball players, and they're even into the cage fighting. And guess what? It's time for the women, the 21st century. Amen. Man, we love, we'll we'll put you up on that soapbox and let you go because what you're saying is so inspiring, so empowering, so important. And Willie, you are now inspiring not just women, you're inspiring men. I mean, you inspire me because you help me to see that when I'm 77, even if I'm not in great shape at that point, it's never too late. What's your message, Willie, now that you've got this audience, now that you have people all over the world listening to every word you say, what do you want them to know about life? Well, I just want everybody to uh, believe in themselves. And uh, exercise is so important because you have to keep uh, the blood flowing. And just to start very slow because everybody's body is very different. And you have to uh, just know that you can become a little better than what you really are. Willie, thank you for that. Nobody wants to be in their 70s. Nobody says, gee, I can't wait till I get old. We're afraid of it. We, we put it away. We think it's a time of decline. What is your message about that? Well, the message is uh, I am self-taught, and uh, I'm very careful uh, not to get injured, but I start uh, light weights and Oh, consistency, that's the key word. You cannot start today and tomorrow you say, I'm too tired, I can't or I won't. Your body is loving you as long as you're moving. And guess what? I only work out three times a week. And guess what? My why are family members, they give me laughter and hugs, and they're very proud of me. And I have a lot of individuals saying that I inspire them to get more exercise, even if it's swimming or yoga or just at home lifting up soup cans. As long as you're loving yourself and just believing in yourself, you can go older and be better. And everybody will love you because you're looking good, too. Man, you are so inspiring, folks. This is Willie Murphy. And, and, and Willie, Bill and I have looked at a lot of people that are older athletes that have done amazing things. And guess what? We have never met one that can do a one-handed pull-up or a one-handed push-up or even fingertip push-up. So work on that. And if you can ever master that, give us a call and we'll put you back on the radio. Well, I am doing that currently. As a matter of fact, on Rachel Ray uh, yesterday on the TV program, I did uh, some of that. And the audience, it was a live audience, and guess what? They were so happy that I represent the seniors of America. Amen. We got to go out of time. We got to get you back on. We love you, Willie Murphy. You are a national treasure. Willie Murphy on Growing Boulder. Coming up on Growing Boulder, returning to your roots, how one of America's top sitcom stars is now back doing his stand-up routine. 
subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Tell me why I love you like I do. Tell me who can stop my heart as much as you. This is Growing Boulder, and I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Our next guest is a stand-up comedian who has something to do with the theme song you just heard. I'll give you another clue. He's one of our personal favorites. He is also an actor and a writer. He created and starred in the acclaimed NBC series Mad About You, which garnered him an Emmy, Golden Globe, an American Comedy Award, and a Screen Actors Guild nomination. Yeah, this guy is multi-talented. He's the author of Familyhood, Babyhood, and Couplehood, which, by the way, sold more than 2 million copies and reached the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. In addition to a career in stand-up, he starred in the, the sitcoms Mad About You, Opposite Helen Hunt, and My Two Dads. The former ran from 92 to 99. He currently stars in the FX series Married with Judy Greer. He's appeared in many films, including Diner, Beverly Hills Cop, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Aliens. He is, of course, the great Paul Reiser. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm exhausted from listening. <laughs> You've done a lot of stuff, oh, haven't you? Oh, my goodness. No wonder I'm tired. That's so much. You know what we love about you is we know that it's nowhere near the end. I mean, you're now <laughs> you're now in your late 50s. You're still getting it done. How is life for Paul Reiser these life days? Life is good. Life is good. Why? What did you hear? Did you hear differently? You know what? I heard your stand-up routine is phenomenal. <laughs> well, thank you. I, You know what? It's so funny after all these years. I, 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 I'm getting back into stand-up, and I hadn't... It was when Matt, exactly, exactly when Matt about you started that I just kind of got distracted and put stand up on the back burner for a while. And, and uh, it took longer than I would have thought to get back to it. So it's really been just for the last couple of years. And uh, I'm having a blast. And it was, it's, it's kind of reaffirming because it's, you know, when I started, that's really all I wanted to do was be a comedian. I didn't have these other, anything, any other grander scheme in mind. And so I was lucky, and a lot of things worked out. But when I finally got back to doing the stand-up, it's been uh, really fun, really fun, and exactly what I what I needed and what I had been missing but didn't realize. But, Paul, stand-up, it's a weird, weird animal. I mean, you can <laughs> you can never afford to turn your brain off. You've got to look at things from every perspective. You're constantly looking for that next joke. My brain does that anyway, so I'm thankful there's a job that uh, welcomes that. Because if I was working at a bank, my brain would be going all over the place anyway. So uh, we kind of often, you know, we're lucky if we find the right vocation for our brains. And, and I'm curious about the process. I, I'm guessing the process is the same, but the world has changed so much from when you did stand up, uh, you know, uh, back in that your. That was before electricity, yes. Ba- back before, you know, now we've got the internet and everything else. Um, uh, is it different for you? There's certainly no, more I'll tell things. You what, what's actually was really. Uh, uh, interesting to note, and, and, and it was kind of validating and, and uh, reassuring, was realizing how much stand-up does not change. The world, you know, since I've done it, it's been out there, yes, the world has changed a lot, but the the actual act of stand-up is the most low-tech uh, thing you can do. You know, it's, there's nothing more primitive than thinking, standing, and talking to people. There's nothing else, you know. And um, so the things you talk about may change, and I'm older, and I'm talking about things that I wouldn't have talked about in my 20s, and before I was married, or I was newly married, you know, so now it's down the road, and, you know, being married 25 years, and having kids, it's, so there's more to talk about. And and the other thing is also, your perspective changes, you have more perspective. Right or wrong, you, you whether you know more, or you just think you know more, you, ha- you do have more opinions <laughs> when you're older. So it's, it's almost easier to get up there and, and uh, start talking. But what's been really fun is I've kind of discovered that my audience, you know, we've all gotten older. So those people who were watching Mad About You in the 90s and say, oh, man, that's exactly us. We just got married. We're just having a kid. Well, now we're all 25 years down the road, and so the audiences that come, it feel, it's like getting together with old friends. You know, it's really this 
great uh, this relationship. Even if we haven't met personally, I feel like we kind of all know each other, and it's it's been a lot of fun. You know, you mentioned Mad About You. First of all, thank you for that program. It was great. <laughs> and as you said, you had a great run through the 90s. It's been in syndication ever since. Uh-huh. And, and while you didn't quit working, you, you sort of laid low after that. Was I that, did. You know, I what, did. What was, what, what, what was that? I was, you know, I had, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a great thing to do a TV show, and it's, but it, it is all-encompassing, or for me it was. And uh, I was really ready for to just hang back, and we had a kid, and then soon as I we were uh, soon after the show was over, we had our uh, second son. So I was really content to just be at home, and I was writing and I was doing things, and periodically doing a, 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 a movie or something. But I was I was just kind of really enjoying uh, the, stepping off of that that uh, that pace for a while, and uh, so even though I was doing things, it wasn't till. I guess about three years ago, when I, I I had always thought I'd get back to stand up, and uh, but I, I, what I did is I did some charity gig and I, uh, some event, some charity event where you MC and usually those are you do two minutes and you you bring up the board of governors and whatever and you go home, and this was just a great fun night and it was a great audience and I and I was I had fun and I was suddenly reminded. Oh yeah, that's why that's why you started this whole thing. That's why you got into it because for that, not for the TV, but just to be on stage. But ironically, as soon as I started working on stand up, everything else has sort of come into and gotten busy again. So um, I got a couple of new TV shows and films, and and uh, I did this this movie. That's just, it's out now. It's called Whiplash, which is uh, getting some nice attention for. Uh, it's a great little movie. I have a little part in it, but it's a beautiful film and, and some great great performances by. Uh, J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller, and just doing, and I'm writing a new show that will I'll probably do next year for myself. So it's ironic that as soon as I, from doing nothing, as soon as I opened the box and got back into stand-up, everything else started uh, happening again too. Well, you're a busy guy, and I guess in a sense that's the engine that's that's driven everything. And speaking of of your your stand-up show now, you tour with this show, which at this point is pretty much brand new to everyone at what point paul do do you turn it into a special because we live into this in this world of repurposing and and kind of memorialize the material and does that then cannibalize your tour audience yeah you know it's interesting i've thought about it and i haven't actually been tempted to do because there is something fun about you know you you, it takes a long time you know you work on stuff and it can be a full year before you something that you know you you, you write it in january and and you have to do it hundreds of times till you go okay now I it's December of that year and I know how to do it. So there is that that fear of when you once you once you do and put memorialize it and put it out there then you got to go write uh the next act. And some guys do it and there are guys who you know like every two years there's a new special. But uh I'm I'm having such fun right now that uh uh it's it's I, I'd rather actually just take it town to town and and do it fresh for the people who haven't seen it. And Paul, in our last thirty seconds or so, you're such a clever guy. You're a great husband, a dad, I'm a remarkable man. You're a rock. Would you mind talking to her? And being <laughs> such a remarkable man, can you can you leave us with what, what have you learned about life from your perspective, from your fascinating seat, uh, you know, at the top of the heap? What can oh. we? What's the takeaway from Paul Reiser? Oh, you have teed this up. You, you need some beautiful piece of wisdom from me, or not? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I I can't help but think of Mel Brooks. Uh, and basically, uh, it's never, good. It's ever good eat to fried food. That's what I would tell you. I thought he was going to say, "It's good to be the king." It's good to be the king. Here you go. And before we leave today, you have no doubt heard the saying, I'm waiting for my ship to come in. That saying actually originated centuries ago when you could buy a share in a ship's cargo, the tea, the spices, the cloth that was to be bought back. And, of course, that took place in the days when communicating with the ships was impossible, and many ships were lost to storms or even pirates, so you never knew when or even if your ship would come in and if you would reap the bounty of the investment. And today it's come to mean simply waiting for something good to come your way. But here's the problem. 
just like in the old days, you don't know if that's ever going to happen. Too many of us are just sitting around waiting for something good to happen. And, and sure, you might get lucky, but odds are that you won't. So don't wait for your ship to come in. Swim out to it. Make something happen. That's Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh,